Hello, everybody. Get on in here. I made you an absolutely amazing clip show, commentary show on the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. All things to do with Zionism, the big Z word. I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound fun, though. Yeah, it's not going to be fun. <laughs> not going to be fun doom scrolling your way to constructing an opinion on the war like everybody else either. So I put the series together with help from my friend Lindsay, Socialistly Awkward, and it truly just boggles my mind that anyone could possibly think of a better way to spend a few hours than with me and my guest right now. We're going to be moving fast. I got a lot to show you today. Again, hi, I'm Kara. I'm an ex-Mormon. If you are new here, welcome. I don't have any formal schooling in anything, just a lot of time spent in comedy clubs. I hope you'll subscribe to this channel. I put out a variety of topics and I'm sure you'll find something that suits you. And while I love doing comedy and just giving satirical takes on things and, you know, topics that are related to Mormonism and deconstruction, people have been telling me that they love my softer side. They love my more thoughtful side better sometimes. So what a great opportunity um, to take on one of the most devastating topics that could possibly be talked about and have a challenge to not be funny. There are some things that I'm going to want to say in a creative way. Comedy is like the lubricant of truth. But overall, I put a lot of thought, research, time, editing into this Israel-Palestine series. I know my guest Lindsay has also worked really hard. Our links are down below of where to support me and Lindsay. Just follow us on social media and reach out. I have my email down below if you want to talk about some stuff. Um, without further ado, this is the second very special episode that I prepared in my podcast, The Mormon History Hoedown. So like I said, we're in part two. Please check out the links below after this of my other parts. They'll be maybe up above as well. If you haven't watched them already, it really pains me that I had to break these up because so many of these ideas flow from one to the other. But I just wanted to mention at the top that I, I don't make a lot of money doing this and uh, YouTube cares a lot if you complete this video. So if you're interested in it and you're like, eh, will I finish it? Just like, go ahead and finish it. Don't think I'm going to be able to monetize all the time that I really put into this. And today we will be going into the history of Zionism, what it is and why it's just an important concept for Jews and Christians and Mormons. After this, I'll be releasing my third and final video that I made, which I wish I didn't have to make on the topic of, is this genocide? How, who do we believe? Propaganda. You better give me 500 examples of everything that you claim, Cara Burrell. Well, join me in part three. So before I bring my guest on, oh man, could a lot be said about this conflict. And I just wanted to start off bring the spirit, <laughs> set the tone. I don't know how else to put it, but introduce what we're trying to do. What I want to say by sharing some words from this is an Israeli father who says just basically so much of what I think me and Lindsay are trying to get across today. So his 14 year old daughter was killed in a suicide bombing 26 years ago by Hamas. And now he helps direct a group called the Parent Circle with Palestinians and Israelis who have lost children to this decades-long conflict. And he just says some really um, profound, inspiring words here after all that he has been through. You know, we are in a circle of uh, blood for, for the last uh, 75 years. And this is just another round. Uh, nobody expected the uh, viciousness and the cruelty of this round. 
but it was expected. You cannot put two million people in a box, close the cover, and uh, expect nothing will happen. It will not stop unless we talk. You cannot annihilate uh, Hamas. You cannot uh, ignore six million people, Palestinians, living here in the uh, Holy Land. And you cannot expect them to go away. They will not go away. We will not go away. We are doomed to live here together, and we have to choose whether to share this land or to share the graveyard under it. Mm. Now we need my guest, my co-host, Lindsay, Socialistly Awkward. Come on in here. Hey, girl, welcome back to part two. Hey, hey, thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Lindsay, just quickly reintroduce yourself, your Zionist upbringing that we talked about in the first episode. Hey, I'm Lindsay. Uh, you might know me on social media as Socialistly Awkward. That's my handle on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. That's where you can find me. Um, I I made a post about Mormon Zionism and my Zionist upbringing, how I was taught about the history of Israel, but very much from a perspective that it absolutely needed to be a country created because it had to exist before God could come back to the earth again, before Jesus could come back again um, in Mormon parlance. I was raised thinking that, you know, this was the fulfillment of prophecy and that Israel absolutely had to exist and that actually eventually what would happen in the fulfillment of prophecy is that the people in Israel would do something just so horrendous or atrocious that the entire world would turn against them and be fighting them. Then two Mormon prophets would go and stand up for them and hold the armies of the earth back and, and save the, the citizens of Israel until those two prophets were allowed to be killed and their bodies would be paraded in the street and then they would be resurrected three days later. And then Jesus would come back and wipe out all the armies who'd been fighting against Israel. And so I just, I saw the country of Israel as the fulfillment of prophecy. And so of course I was always gonna support them. In like 2009, I had a bumper sticker, I stand with Israel on my car. When I was a teenager, I stopped eating bacon because I was like, hey, like, no, like the Jews got that right. Like we need to live this higher law. Yeah, very similar upbringing to me. The Mormon religion, though, since it's it's once just based so entirely, no exaggeration, on appropriating and remixing Protestant Christianity, Native American traditions, Jewish traditions into Joseph Smith's creation. So, Lindsay, and then you made a viral video describing your aha moment when you were a Zionist. Tell the audience about that. Yeah, I was talking with a friend who had left the Mormon church earlier than I had in 2011, 2012, um, about what was currently happening in the Palestinian Israeli region at the time. And he, he kept talking about what the Palestinians were experiencing, what they were going through oppression they were facing. And I was getting frustrated because that, that wasn't part of my talking points. That wasn't part of what I was raised believing. And so my response, and I thought it was a great response was, you know how this all ends. And my friend very graciously said, I don't, I don't believe that. And I, I don't think that's justification for people dying and for people being oppressed. And that was something that kind of stuck with me. And then as I deconstructed Mormonism, I thought about it more and more and really reexamined where I had gotten my beliefs and why I believed the things I did. And who benefited from me believing those things and also had to deconstruct my Zionism. And so that was a journey I went on and, and something that I think is really important to talk about. Absolutely. Thank you for saying all of that. 
So we'll get into the definition and the history of Zionism, Aqua, everything to do with that in just a second. Uh, but let me go ahead and read this post from the Judaism Reddit page. Um, tell me what you think about this. It says, Zionism defined, quote, Zionism simply means the belief that Jews should have a home that is their ancestral land. That's it. And then the commenter said, I would modify it slightly. Zionism means the belief that the Jewish people, like all other people, should have a home and be sovereign in their industrial land. If you, one, support the rights of other people, French, Turks, Japanese, Haitians, Egyptians, etc., to have a home and be sovereign in their ancestral land, but you are anti-Zionist, then you are, by definition, anti-Jewish. To be anti-Zionist is to say that the Jews should alone be denied the right that you think belongs to other people. The only case I can imagine where being anti-Zionist isn't anti-Jewish is where you oppose the rights of all people to be sovereign in their ancestral land. What do you think about that type of take? I know this, I don't know. I feel like this might be controversial, but I, I just, I honestly mean this in the most empathetic way possible. I can understand why people adhere to Zionism that, that are Jewish. I, 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 I get why logically that makes sense. If you look at the pogroms in Russia, if you look at what the, the discrimination and the prejudice they face in Europe, if you look at what has happened worldwide, including the Holocaust, but including a lot of other things, of course, of course, you're saying these governments don't protect us. These institutions don't protect us. Um, living in all these different places doesn't protect us. Our religious institutions only provide so much protection and and eventually terrible things happen. And so I can understand with that perspective and seeing how institutions of these other governments don't protect you, that the idea of having your own government institutions, your own government, your own country that will protect your interests and your safety absolutely makes sense. I, I I think most people would be like, yes, I can see how we go from point A to point B to point C. I can see why that would make sense. And and even especially because we we all know, we all or we should all know it shouldn't this shouldn't be controversial that Jewish people have faced immense prejudice and discrimination. And I, I mean, we have the Holocaust, we have centuries upon centuries of, of discrimination without any institutional support. And so I can understand why a people who feels displaced and discriminated against and um, continually failed by institutions would say, well, if we make our own institutions, they will protect us. That's absolutely what we have to do. So first of all, I just, I absolutely want to say, I understand that. I just feel like there is difficulty for some people and then empathizing why Palestinian people would feel the same way. Um, they are also a distinct cultural group who had land that they lived on, who didn't have the institutional support of a government, didn't have structures that protected them, had neighbors of similar backgrounds and similar religious beliefs who some would sometimes treat them awfully too. We don't always talk about that history, but they were sometimes treated awfully by their neighbors, used as pawns and, and then discarded 
when it was no longer politically expedient, were at the whim of occupying countries and occupying the Ottoman Empire, all of these groups who didn't have their best interests at heart and would discriminate against them. And, you know, the British who was willing to give away their land and their property. And so I, I just, I don't always understand why people who could understand why Jewish people would want, uh, would, would adhere to Zionism because of their history can't understand why Palestinian people would also yearn for the exact same thing, that that would be what they also want. They want institutions that will protect them, protect their home, their property, their livelihood, their families, their children, their ability to live in, in a way that they want to and to protect them just and give them access to human rights. Absolutely. Boil this all down. And how can we not see the Palestinians are also a group of people who haven't had the support um, of institutions with their best interests at heart. And again, as we'll get into, people from both sides have been killed because of a lack of democracy, a lack of institutions that represent what the people want and need in favor of ideas. Ideas that when put into place like expansionism, like ethno-nationalism, do nothing to provide the safety the Jewish people have ultimately yearned for. Cannot wait to show you so many different clips about this specifically. About uh, it's, it's called um, called Gaza-Israel Catastrophe, the Strategy of Tension. So much to say on this topic. But yeah, um, like I said, I think we all have to analyze the inputs that have educated us on certain topics. And if we don't know what we're looking at, then we don't know what position to take. And I think I think this Reddit post on Zionism is predicated, though, on the idea that there is a monolith, again, of Jewish, Jewish thought. There's so much to deconstruct here. But there isn't a monolith of Jewish thought, and there just simply isn't one either when it comes to Zionism. So it's like jumping from A down to Z without contextualizing and supporting the arguments along the way. Because, like, being called a bigot, it's the worst thing in the world. Being critical of Zionism for geopolitical reasons gets you labeled a bigot. So don't be critical of Zionism for geopolitical reasons. And it's just like, no matter where you fall, left, right, Jewish, non-Jewish, never waver in your concern for Israel. Never question its actions. Never see the Palestinians as equally deserving of concern. Never take note of the instances you know, that where they have lacked institutional support in similar ways to Jews in the past. And this is where I'm like, empathy can be weaponized to bring about good or to bring about evil. And it all depends on whose story you're in. So this, this pray for Israel side to me isn't anywhere close to being in the story that they think that they are. Like if asking for a ceasefire from Israel is absurd to you. Long term, you you aren't in the story of protecting Jews. Not with what Iran and Hezbollah will exact against the state of Israel. It's just you're you're in Netanyahu's story. Like this story that we tell ourselves about what and who we're fighting for has to match reality. So when when the reality and what you wish the reality was, um, when that's happening, 
Is that why we see so many people having the inability to see Palestinians as as wanting the same things or seeing them as as also being systemically denied from the same things that Jews yearn for? I don't know. So tell me what other responses do you have to the idea of um, that being that old thing of being anti-Zionist means anti-Jewish? No, I'm so glad you brought that up. My other response is that I'm going to use like a little analogy. We like things to be simple when they aren't always simple. Um, It helps with cognitive dissonance. We don't want to fret about things, uh, be overwhelmed with emotionally having to confront things. We jump to this place where then we want to easily be able to say, if you disagree with Zionism, then that means you're anti-Semitic because it, it is personal for people. It is, it is a part of them. And it feels like a personal attack. If you say, I disagree with Zionism, that feels like a a personal attack. And I can understand why that feels like a personal attack. Um, But it's also important to remember that Zionism is a, a political movement. It it is a, it was a political ideology. It was a, a political and social ideology, I think you could say. And just like I can criticize Donald Trump, And I can criticize the United States government and I can criticize our colonialism. That doesn't make me anti-Christian, even though a lot of people in this country say that we're a Christian nation. It's that's not me attacking Christianity. That's not me attacking Christians right to exist in the same way. I can talk about issues within Zionism, issues with Zionism and things that results of Zionism that in no way is a reflection on how I feel about Jewish people or or what I think about Jewish people or my belief in that they deserve human rights. They deserve self-determination. They deserve all of these same things that criticizing a political and social movement is not criticizing people's right to exist or people's humanity. But I can understand why that is difficult for people to separate in their minds and that it does end up just feeling like a personal attack. My final response to this, I'm get, bear with me. I'm going to tell like a little, that was a very Mormon thing to say, Jesus. Um, bear with me. Bear with me. I'm, I'm just going to tell like a little story. It has a point. It'll be short. Um, my mom's family is Norwegian and we kind of all revel in that Norwegian heritage. Um, my grandma would sing Norwegian lullabies. We celebrate still a Norwegian Christmas and part of my heritage and my culture. And I still do feel a connection with that Norwegian culture. It's it's language I use, it's food I eat, it's um, just the environment I grew up in. And if if the Norwegian government came to me and said, you're obviously not safe, in the United States. Like, look at what's happening with all of the shootings. Come back home. Like you, if you have heritage here, look, like if you can prove like your family contributed to society there, your family built, you know, these safe churches, you, you have this connection to Norwegian culture. Come home, come here, come be safe here. Because obviously you're not as safe in the United States. And there's a lot of terrible things happening. So why, why would you want to stay there? If I if I went there and they said, hey, also, we've made it legal for you to just have some land. We actually, we took it from the Sami people, the indigenous Sami people of Norway, but it's okay because we made it legal and like, don't worry about it. Um, they still have plenty of land, but we want you, we want, you know, people who 
of are of Norwegian descent and feel an attachment to that heritage to come back to their home where their people were, where they, you know, their ancestors built churches and influenced religion and culture there and, and come be here and, and we will get, we will get land for you and just come be safe here. Come be here with your family. That does that sound appropriate? Does that sound like something I should be able to do? Does, does that sound like something that would be okay for me to claim that I was able to do? And if not, then if we just switch the cultural heritage from Norwegian to Jewish, why does that suddenly make it okay? Yeah, I think the argument generally goes that because Jews are God's chosen people, not only do they have uh, the ancestral land that is it's just on the it's on the front burner of everybody's minds especially in the western world about a certain people's tie to a certain land that is not on the front burner about other things that are always moved to the back burner so the definition of zionism is uh zionism is israel's national ideology zionists believe judaism is a nationality as well as a religion and that jews deserve their own state in their ancestral homeland israel in the same way the french people deserve france or chinese people should have china it's what brought the jews back to israel in the first place and also at the heart of what concerns arabs and palestinians about the israel state jews often trace their nationhood back to the biblical kingdoms of david and solomon circa 1950 bc modern zionism building on the long-standing jewish yearning to a return to Zion began in the 19th century, right about the time that nationalism started to rise in Europe, i.e. World War II, Holocaust. A secular Austrian Jewish journalist, Theodor Herzl, was the first to turn rumblings of Jewish nationalism into an international movement around 1896. Herzl witnessed brutal European anti-Semitism firsthand and became convinced the Jewish people could never survive outside of a country of their own. He wrote essays and organized meetings that spurred mass Jewish immigration from Europe to what's now Israel slash Palestine. Before Herzl, about 20,000 Jews lived there. By the time Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany, the number was about eight times that. Though Zionists all agree that Israel should exist, they've long disagreed on what its government should look like, pinning that because of the corruption that exists in every government, but then especially being propped up by a very right-wing government that has a low-key type of dictator as it does right now. The ideas about Zionism are very separate from how Israel itself should be governed. Just wanted to, anything you want to add to that? Oh, yeah. I was going to say just a couple of points that I always think should be uh, discussed, or at least just like, you know, a pin put in them for Zionism is that Zionism was initially, it wasn't a religious movement per se. As as you said, Theodore Herzl was, uh, was secular. A lot of early Zionists were athe atheists, like Jewish, but atheists, they weren't religious. Um, a lot of them had, it was really a, like a, it's a product of its time. Nationalism was uh, a big movement in the late 18th or late 19th century, um, 1870s, 80s, 90s. There was a lot of movement within socialist circles, but also really fascist circles about people needing and deserving homelands. So this wasn't a unique idea for, for Zionism to exist. There were lots of groups that felt that people needed homelands. Um, 
I mean, I mean, we can see this. I, I purely make this analogy just because it's so relatable to people. That is part of what, um, you know, the fascists in Germany, we need a homeland. We need a group for our people. That, that was a popular movement at that time. And so this wasn't a super unique idea. It was just very specific for like Zionism was specific for Jewish people. Um, but it was very secular and it did have both socialist movement, like a, a socialist bend to some of it because there were lots of different people. Theodore Herzl is kind of one of the main ones, but there were lots of Zionists and lots of different ideas within the Zionist movement of what, of what it should look like. And so there was yeah. a socialist kind of wing of it. There was also a very fascist wing of it. And that really um, kind of went away with the rise of Nazi Germany, but that that was one aspect of of the Zionist movement is there was a very fascist wing of it. Um, and they had some of the rhetoric about displacing indigenous people. And so even Theodore Herzl talked about that they wanted to displace native people for their home and, and for the home that, that they felt they deserved. And that that's an important thing that we have to talk about. If we're going to talk about founding documents of different groups at play today, we also have to acknowledge that within early Zionism and within different groups within that Zionist movement, there was an acknowledgement that they would be removing indigenous people from their lands and even discussions about who would nobody care if those people were removed from their lands. And something else that needs to be talked about is that it wasn't, they didn't just settle on the Palestinian land or that area, the area that is the country of Israel. Now that wasn't like a, a given that, that they should have that land. They talked about going to Uganda. They talked about going to Kenya. There was talks about areas within Russia or around Russia, because a lot of them had come from that area, but that was quickly abandoned because of all the pogroms that they didn't think that they could be safe in that area, which was a re like a rational thing to think. Do you want to pause on that? I just wanted to drive that point home from our last video yeah. about the non-religious reasons that Israel was even created as a state and, you know, why the British chose Palestine um, and that it has a lot more to do with imperialism and the advantages of the Western world when uh, colonizing lands and moving the Jews to a region that would protect their economic interests, right? So on the screen here, I uh, wanted to pull up, this says, uh, this day in Jewish history, 1903, Herzl proposes Kenya, not Uganda, as a safe haven for the Jews. And uh, it reads, anti-Semitism was rearing its head in Europe again, and the Jews needed to flee. But where could they go? The British had a suggestion. And then you can also read about this history on uh, Wikipedia, the Uganda scheme um, proposed by British colonial secretary Joseph Chamberlain. Uh, Theodore Herzl met, you know, for the Sixth World Congress in 1903. And it says right here that the British were involved in the scramble for East Africa to safeguard a range of British interests, such as commercial superiority, the crusade against the East African slave trade, apprehension of the control of the territory as it served as a trade route to India. Yeah, so we yeah. know with Western powers like the British back then, and especially America today, have more complicated reasons for colonizing Palestine and moving Jews to that specific land with uh, current anti-Semitic accusations being thrown around today when questioning theirs or the British or anyone's right to forcibly remove Arabs from the land that they'd 
called Home for Centuries, with a very not-so-one-size-fits-all agreement on where Jews should be moved to be safe from persecution and perhaps a more retroactive justification given. Yeah, let's talk about what that justification was. Well, in the Torah, this was our ancestral homeland, so this is where we're supposed to be. So that wasn't initially a part of Zionism. There was a huge push for them to move to Kenya. But when that didn't end up panning out and they chose the area where they currently went, there was a retroactive justification as to why they deserve to be there and why they deserved access to that land. We see it now and we're like, well, of course they chose that because retro retroactively a justification was given, but that wasn't always a given. Yeah. And if you want to play conspiracy theorist, like I was doing before, it's like, cause it really doesn't make sense, at least not at that time period where there are people on that land that you're going to have to, you're going to have to displace and move off of it. Uh, and with gigantic imperialist powers who are used to doing that enough and, and moving their people onto that land. And just think about how many different wars and revolutions have been fought to decolonize their themselves throughout time. The it's, it's almost like the people who who had to have this retroactive excuse for it is what it's maintaining still today. But it it only made sense at the time for other reasons. And the the ones that are still trying to be held up the most right now to be put to the forefront as if it is the main reason is the religious one. But like I was saying, there's so many other factors that go into this. So those are all really, really good points. That is some amazing context. Thank you so much. I uh, wanted to add just to that, that I wanted to understand this idea about Zionism from the widest perspective that I could. And tell me what you think about this. Um, I have my opinions, obviously, but I wanted to make sure that I could understand what all the arguments are from even, you know, the most religious people, who, everybody in between, Jews who are anti-Zionist, pro-Zionist. So uh, I thought that you and I, Lynn's, could uh, react to some of these clips here that I've pulled up. And the first one is a woman just telling it how it is. It's just not All complicated right. to her. Just in case anybody out there is wondering, is the Palestinians justified in what they're doing with, to Israel? If anybody knows their Bible and their history, everyone knows that Israel belongs to the Jews, God's chosen people. It's always been their land. It was taken from them. And the Palestinians have absolutely no right over Jerusalem or the Temple Mount or any other place like that. None of this is justified. And Israel has every right and then some to fight back. And that's what does and then some mean? And then some? Because that's where it comes in. That's where that language of like, yeah. we understand defending yourself. But then what we're talking about is an exponential amount of killing in a short amount of time that is against every single you know, Geneva Convention war crimes manual that we have. Yeah. Am I wrong? Like, what do you mean? And then some, why do they get to have, and then some? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, we, we're all for then, like, especially when I was honest, I was like, no, yeah. And then, and then you can be punitive because everyone should know it's yours. Again, I just still think this is such a fascinating argument that, that people are making, and I get it because I used to make it, but that because of something written in the Torah or the Bible thousands of years ago that was written in a very specific perspective, like when we historically look at the Torah and the Bible, everything in it isn't historically accurate. Like 
we know the Jews weren't in Egypt. That didn't happen. Um, and when we look at different different stories where they talk about how they completely destroyed certain people, man, woman, child, animal, everything, everything was gone. We know that didn't happen because those people still exist. And so when they said that they would completely destroy these areas, we know that that's not entirely true. Like there are aspects of the Torah and the Bible that are basically a very small country or a small group of people stating that they are, they are special too. They're important too. Yeah. They're not as big as the Babylonians. Yeah. They're not, you know, they're not all these different things, but they're important too. And their God said, they're the chosen people. And so they have a right to this land like that. That'd be like, if I wrote a journal, I was like, I'm the most beautiful, also the smartest. My God said that I get access to all of this land. And I like, he gave it to me. I got to wipe out all these people and get this land. And then he gave it to me. And then I'm like, see, that's proof. I deserve it actually because of a book yeah. I wrote about my perception of events. That was Joseph also Smith as well. Text. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the justifications for me, but not for thee. Exactly. And that, that we like what they're essentially asking is that we'll use a religious text that is obviously slanted to a very specific perspective to justify colonization. And, and I mean, we did that. The book of Mormon does that we've done that with the Bible, but like, I, I, I had hoped we were getting to a point where as people, we were recognizing that just because the religious texts that we like say that we have access to something doesn't that that should not translate into like geopolitical ramifications. Exactly. Very good point on that because Netanyahu is like quoting scripture right now. And remember they elected like a very um, far right government and yes. um, hope that we can get into talking more about that. The, this quoting of scriptures is everything has an interpretation. Ask Dan McClellan, you know, ask a biblical scholar mm -hmm. and you can take some of the most horrible passages uh, from your holy text as religions do. It's again, like I get to interpret the most vicious versions of my God for me, but not for thee, like for the Jews, but not for the Muslims, for the Mormons exactly. when we need to do it, but not for the, you know, so, uh, that leads me to, there's another really great clip of this rabbi calling out Netanyahu for doing exactly that. On the screen, it says, Israel's prime minister quoted Jewish scripture to justify killing Palestinian civilians. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our holy Bible. When Benjamin Netanyahu, on the eve of sending tanks in to massacre more Gazan civilians, tells the Israeli public and the world to quote Deuteronomy chapter 25 and remember what Amalek did to you, he knows that we're filling in the rest of that verse to eradicate, to erase the memory of Amalek. Then let me pause here. It says, in the book of 1 Samuel, God instructs the Israelites to kill every Amalek man, woman, and child. Now go attack Amalek and prescribe all that belongs to him. Spare no one, but kill alike men and women, infants and sucklings, oxen and sheep, camels and asses. Then it says, prompting many to read Netanyahu's comments as justifying the killing of civilians in Gaza. The later Jewish tradition thoroughly rejects that application, that literal political application of the commandment. There is no physical nation of Amalek. Amalek becomes a trait, a characteristic that 
can exist within all of us. Hasidic tradition talks all the time about the Amalek within you. That Amalekite spirit is the spirit of the powerful preying on the weak. Then it says Netanyahu has been increasingly quoting scripture in his speeches since October 7th. He only knows the literal tradition and takes this um, as you know, a commandment to wipe out Amalek. But if, he, if that's how he takes it, I mean, we should really go into the whole interpretive tradition of this and what he's violating and what it implies about how he sees himself. He sees himself as the, the king of Israel, that the establishment of the state is the completion of the previously uh, religious ideal of in gathering of the exiles and return to Zion. I want to invite us all to feel the power of our collective and individual voices right now. And then on screen it says, since October 7th, Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 8,000 Palestinians in Gaza. And of course, I have to update that. Let me pull this up. And it says, you know, in Israel, um, about 1,200 people have been killed. But in Gaza, at least 15,207, including 6,150 children. And then far more injured, at least 40,000 people have been injured, 70% of them children and women. It's very terrifying obviously on the human rights and geopolitical front. It's very terrifying from a perspective of caring about the well-being and safe return of the Israeli hostages. Um, and it's very terrifying in terms of what is becoming of Judaism and the Jewish tradition that I just, you know, that even some religious people are letting this ignoramus and moron fascist hijack the Jewish tradition and link it to this atrocity that's also such a stupid and grotesque reading of our tradition. So let me see if there's anything else on this one, though. She well, made her I point. mean, like the same thing, like, where do we stop there while you're looking for that clip? But like, where do we stop? Because like, my husband, his grandpa is Italian. And so the Romans took over that area. That was part of their empire. They called it Pax Palestinia. So obviously their god jupiter thought they should have it rather than israeli people so like does my husband have access to that land because his ancestors the romans took over it so does does he have claim on it because he's italian like at, at what point do we draw the line on that or do we just cherry pick what we want to believe or what justifications we want yeah, um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to do a little speech about how uh, that saying that healed people heal people and hurt people hurt people, you know. So there's this concept, right, that hurt people hurt people. And commonly, we understand that, that people who do not process this unresolved trauma, whether it's emotionally, psychologically, that that hurt, that they are more likely to harm um, other people. Yeah. And normally when it's talked about in interpersonal types of relationships, but of course it can be applied to a collective group. And if we understand collectively what Jewish people have experienced and we understand mm -hmm. that like, holy crap, yes, the suffering and horror of the Holocaust, that they were mistreated and cheated and tortured and killed at the hands of the Europeans. And then after the Holocaust, 1948, that they have this giant migration from Europe to Palestine and that that didn't happen in any pretty way. And the, the Jewish militias um, attacking Palestinian villages, massacring thousands and thousands of innocent people and something that was supposed to be, you know, never happen again, never, never forget that 
it's like never forget when that happened to us that 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 violence is allowed to be exacted against 750,000 Palestinians in this Nakba, causing them to flee from their home, something that was an act of ethnic cleansing. And uh, let me play this clip of these Jewish militias, these elderly men still talking about it in a way where they're proud of it. They're still obsessed with this idea of the strength and conquering where once they were weak and then they were strong. Mm -hmm. We killed them without remorse. We say during battle, if someone raised hands, I didn't take captives. Undoubtedly, it was a combination of all kinds of things, of vengeance and of cruelty, and people who came from, some people came from the death camps. They released their anger on everyone they saw. In the War of Independence, we knew one thing, it's either me or them. A state is seized by the sword. That's what my father told me. You take a country by force. No, Nobody is going to come and heal you. The reasons why... Like they feel like it's okay, I'll have to go back to, you know, the the anti-Semitism that it's like, I I agree that there's been anti-Semitism and like the ways to heal that the ways to to like heal from those things psychologically, you know, speaking, is as a collective, is is understanding what that generational trauma has caused to the people. And I'm like, I'm I'm obviously one dumb white girl in Utah, and I'm I'm trying to repeat the things that I have heard so many different rabbis and things um, that I can play as well, making those sentiments, you know? Yeah. I I was going to say, I I think it's, it can be similar to the analogy that, you know, I always heard growing up when I was bullied or teased is most likely somebody like an adult, someone that that child loves and trusts and needs did something really awful to that child. And they feel powerless and weak and, and, and like they, they've been hurt, they've been traumatized. And so they can't fight back against the adult in their life who is hurting them, but they can find someone else that they think is weak, that they can pick on. And in that, and they aren't healing themselves by doing that, but they have found some way to make themselves feel powerful again and someone else to, to use as, as a way to feel like they can take back control. I'm going to play a couple of clips where some people make this argument and it's a lot of confidence for such a stupid point, you know, <laughs> and uh, they usually are. That, yeah, that, that usually goes hand in hand. Yeah. I feel like this clip I'm going to show you is my favorite out of the three and a half hours of clips that I've collected um, so in terms of just like, interesting that you put that on the internet. Wow. What some people tolerate <laughs> as that's a choice as takes and comedy. I just spent way too long in the stand-up scene seeing open micers and I'm just like this would get eye rolls and people's heading to the bathroom and it has a million views on TikTok. What has gone wrong in our country? Anyway, I think it's a little ironic that the people who seem to be defending Hamas online are also the ones they'd be most likely to kill. Oh, no, no. I'm sure the Islamic terrorists would love you, queer intellectual feminist. We're freedom fighters. They're fighting for their land and I'm fighting for my right to purple hair. I just need to tell anyone, please, if you are a stand up comedian and you're not uh, terrible, (laughs) please reach out to me and also hold my hand. That is just such a dead crowd nobody laughs type of joke at an no. open mic night where everyone's like yeah that's everyone's your punchline like, that that was his punchline he did that he did that as a i guarantee you this guy looks like he's a what are you in philadelphia you went to some funny bone comedy club and you thought that was going to be a brouhaha of a punchline 
Yeah. Um, that is the purple most hair. Star. Gets them every the purple time. Purple hair. I'm going to satirize him for the rest of my life. <sighs> what the fuck? It's like a girl in a really toxic relationship. I know you don't like him because he kidnaps and murders people, but trust me, when I'm alone with him, he is such a sweetheart. I'm sorry, if your reaction to people being slaughtered, beheaded, raped, and burned alive isn't complete and utter disgust and horror, if your reaction is, yeah, but I mean, why? See it from their perspective. So what we have here is a false equivocation between Hamas and Palestinians, and then an exaggeration about things that in the media, well, horrendous things did happen at the hands of Hamas. And I would never deny that there is uh, a tendency again with propaganda and different things that the, the burned babies thing, like Ben Shapiro retweeted that turned out to be a picture that was That's created true. by a, an AI generator and stuff. And so when we're talking about, you know, demonizing people who are just, who are trying to grasp for power, like we've been discussing in this podcast series, then understanding it comes through some horrendous means sometimes, some very bloody means. Um, it's not helpful to anybody. If you are queer, whatever it is, you understand how difficult it is when you are mischaracterized as like a pedophile, because like, you know, 1% mm -hmm. of gay people are pedophile or whatever, you know, you know how difficult and painful that is when people are trying to restrict you from rights and they need to exaggerate and have false equivocations. And it is, again, a complete misunderstanding of the situation to put down these people to what I think is just make um, a guy who can't perform well at an open mic night get a million views on TikTok. Yeah, uh, no. Well, and, your take? and two, before we get too much further, two quick points I want to make is one, yes, again, like I said, I have heard this so many times. Like, why would you stand up for Palestinians? Because, like, you're a woman and also you're bi. So it's not like they would accept you, anyways. And And he brings that up, same, like, same thing. You know, it's the and he even frames it as why are the marginalized people standing up for the marginalized people? I don't know. Maybe that's just like common sense math. But if you've been marginalized, that's what it should you, be. That's he's like on the other right, side of yeah, it. This should be common sense math. If you've been marginalized, you recognize marginalization in other groups and you you can empathize with that because you have been marginalized. So why is it that marginalized groups keep standing up for other marginalized groups? Because we have been the recipient, the recipients of that marginalization and it sucks. And so we are good. We are the ones who are more likely to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I've also been marginalized or faced some level of oppression. And so I'm going to stand up for other people because I recognize how painful and terrible that is. Not obviously nothing I've experienced has been anything like what Palestinians have experienced. So if we're going to talk about do people who don't respect gay people or women deserve human rights? Well, then we would need to talk about the Mormons. We would need to talk about the Republicans. We would need to talk about the evangelicals. So we don't have to travel halfway around the world to have that conversation. So if you believe those groups of people deserve human rights, then why don't the Palestinians? You need to get your fucking head checked, okay? I'm sure Jeffrey Dahmer had a rough childhood. That doesn't mean I empathize with him. If you want to free Palestine, free Palestine from Hamas. Um, just one more point about his video. And he didn't mean this as the mean point, but or the main point, but mm, I'm, we need to talk about it, um, especially where he talks about you talked about, you know, the the AI 
burned bodies and we heard about the beheaded babies. And then it turned out that wasn't true. Um, and from the get go, I was suspicious about that and not, I was like, let's wait, let's wait for more information because it is one of the oldest propaganda techniques through all of time to blame your enemy on performing atrocities on babies. Like it, it dates, we have evidence of it going back 2000 years. And it was a very popular propaganda technique in the middle ages. And we've even seen it more recently where when Iraq invaded Kuwait, there was a young woman who was brought to testify before Congress. She was weeping. She said she was an aide in a hospital. She said that the Iraqi soldiers would go into the hospitals, take the babies out of the incubators, leave them on the ground, and then they would just die. Which, as a NICU nurse who's worked in the NICU, the best solution to that is just pick up the babies. You don't have to leave them on the floor. Um, but And so she was like, they're going into hospitals and leaving these babies on the floor to die. And she was weeping, and it it really just like galvanized everyone. We wanted to go into desert storm. And we did shortly after that. Turns out she was the Kuwait, a Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter. She'd never worked in a hospital. The entire testimony was a lie. None of it had ever happened. Her dad stood to make tons and tons of money off military contracts. They got very wealthy. It was all a lie. You know, that that's the end. None of it had ever happened. And so when I heard that story about babies, it reminded me of the story about the Kuwaiti babies that was an absolute lie. And I, I got called all kinds of terrible names for saying like, let's just wait. I want this to be verified before we are outraged. And it turns out like the Kuwaiti baby story, it wasn't real. It wasn't real. It was meant to stir outrage and horror and galvanize us to throw all of our support behind the Israeli army doing whatever they wanted. And it was propaganda. Yeah. I like that you chose the word galvanize there. Um, I wish I had the definition on me of galvanize, but I think of, you know, galvanize steel or to make something that's strong, even stronger. And yeah, I think that's really an appropriate reinforced. use of the word. Yeah. I think that's an, 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 uh, important use of the word there in that ex exchange, because, um, I know how, what you said could possibly come across that. It's like, you know, you're denying something and you're taking the side of a terrorist organization or something. It's like, I'm not taking the side of any terrorist mm -hmm. organization. It's quite the opposite. I am trying to look at how to like, uh, how do two different sides who have so many innocent people and so, so much complexity and so much history together that there's a lot of propaganda. And I think when we're talking about things that have to do with war, it is important to um, look at the power dynamics that exist between the two groups. You cannot sweep that under the rug and then also uh, understand the way, the role that propaganda has played to galvanize and reinforce the one in the superior position of power. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's what I mean by galvanize. It's something that is already very strong and has the worldwide media. That's why this mm -hmm. talking about propaganda is so important because some of the things we're saying here make perfect sense to me because I'm not on mainstream news. I don't watch a lot of it. Um, yeah. And so it's like people who are, are on uh, social media platforms and on uh, Reddit and things like that. It's like we get our news source that isn't quite as filtered through this big propaganda arm yeah. of our, our country. But the 
the ability for people to speak out and say like, whoa, there's a power dynamic here. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of signs of propaganda that remind me of all these other, other different places and regimes. And no, you can't just tell me that I'm anti-Semitic because I don't believe Israeli propaganda. I believe Jewish people and I believe in their human rights. I believe everything, you know, that is good about, about, you know, a religious community who has gone through a lot. I, I see that humanity in them, but I'm not going to let people play this equivocation game of criticism of like the propaganda that is truthfully like come out and it's, it's been shown to be false. I'm not going to let them uh, push me into a corner to, to take away anything from me. Cause I don't have anything that they could take away. So, exactly. um, yeah. And I was gonna say, yeah, all, all I mean with that analogy or that story is that it's important to verify that, that what different sides in wars want is they want to appeal to your emotions and they, and they want support for their actions. And so when, and, and it's difficult. It's difficult to be skeptical. And it's especially when we hear about something that is horrifying. And so what is what what we have to do and what it behooves us to do is to be skeptical and and just pause for a minute. And that can be hard to do, but it's important to is accuracy is important because actions that are taken rashly or statements that are made rashly. I found I rarely regret it if I am skeptical and wait for verification versus if I rush to judgment. Mm-hmm. Well said. Just go to Nuance Ho's YouTube channel and see what her take is on it. And uh, she's probably fact-checked then. It's probably true. And just like from there on, just kidding. <laughs> no, I, uh, I do love the uh, ex-Mormon community. I was just on the phone with my sister just now asking her uh, some questions about what she thinks about deconstruction and so forth and how it relates to this topic. And uh, she's like, I really admire you, Kara, and you know, ex-Mormons in this space, basically, who once we've deconstructed things, you're like, man, that can be false and everything else can be false. Mm-hmm. And obviously that is a, that's a generalization I know, but from what I've seen, I really, um, I'm proud of anybody who's deconstructed like a high demand religion and feels bamboozled once. And they're like, wait a second. And that's how the nuance was born. I went from being like super right wing before I am this girl. Right. And so I was like, I am never going to be so like dogmatic in one way ever again. And I was like, I want to see all the signs, you know? So that's how the nuance was born. One thing I didn't understand for a long time when I, I was Mormon and I was very conservative, you could call it like, um, a true, true type of, of spirituality of recognizing that the kingdom of God is within or things like that. And so one of my favorite things that I've realized lately is how interconnected all of these things are. And when I was very conservative and I was constantly making fun of like the social justice warriors and I ran an anti-feminist Twitter page and stuff. And so what a, a main faction of people who, um, hear maybe discussions like this that we're having, that it's like, putting this this woke label on things that I think are they don't need to be demonized or whatever but the, yeah I, I think that there's just this really sad tendency because it was it was I'm admitting that that was very alive within me that things that we would label now as kind of like woke social justice ideas that are all put in this category of just like people who are too politically correct people who are too annoying that we have to sit in this area of discomfort. And, and we don't like that as humans. We don't, I mean, ex-Mormons, 
are, are very good at recognizing that we don't like cognitive dissonance and that sitting, but sitting in that is where change happens. But so we avoid it. Our brain avoids it. It's work. We don't like that. But that if we really want to feel empathy and really, um, I know this is going to sound like all lefty, but like get in touch with the humanity, try, try to, what we just say, like walk a mile in these people's shoes. I like, I was always taught, like, don't judge people, walk a mile in their shoes. If we want to do that, you have to sit in an uncomfortable place where your perceptions and your, what you want to feel like is objective is challenged. And that is deeply uncomfortable and unsettling for people. So that's what's so frustrating about when you want to be able to have conversations like this, like, okay, you know, you woke commie or whatever. But the, my favorite thing that I really have discovered lately is that experience is to be able to just uh, experience discomfort without having a, a lot of means to correct it. And like mm -hmm. the, the immense amount of discomfort there is when you when you uh, feel like a sense of injustice is done by somebody else, your society, to you personally, like how much do we walk around in our daily lives feeling like somebody did something to us that is unjust and I want to make it right? That is so much of the basis of so many religions about karma and then that discomfort being told that like that can be taken away by this religion. You put your worries on God, he's coming back, things like that. Yeah. And I think that that's what some people need that structure of religion to kind of deal with that discomfort, that that discomfort, it's like, okay, well, we know how this ends. And like talking about our Zionist mm -hmm. conversation, you know, it's like, no, the, that, that's not the, actually the answer. The answer is not to put that off on another day. The, yes. the super commie, you know, woke answer is like, no, the, the discomfort that you're feeling is just a natural outgrowth of the universe as we are, whoever we are feeling discomfort and don't know, know what to do with it. So that goes back to my woke thing. It's like, I was asked on uh, Mormon book reviews the other day, Kara, are you woke? And I'm like, I think that's the stupidest conversation to even have about wokeness because it takes the, uh, it, it, it labels things where people are just trying to have a, an access to power. They feel an injustice. Yeah. And just like everything we've talked about with people very imperfectly in different uh, societies and cultures and religions and uh, revolutions, trying to gain access to power, big scale or small scale, people do it very imperfectly. The, when, you, when you're annoyed, like I ran an anti-feminist page, I get it. There are a lot of people say a lot of diff, stupid things sometimes, but generally speaking, the feminist movement was a good thing, even though I used to say that like, yeah, they sometimes people blew up buildings to get their rights. You know, it's like, you can't, you can't look at, at a movement towards people gaining access to power and just be annoyed with it or, or just like wag a finger at, at places where there are legitimately marginalized people, meaning marginalized by definition, meaning on the margins, meaning not in the mainstream, meaning they don't have power that the mainstream has access to. What is that going to look like? Does the, does the mainstream just give them that power? No, they're no. going to, if you're in the mainstream and you are not marginalized, you might be annoyed by it. You know, like we've been discussing when it's your thing, you understand it when it yeah. comes from your values and your background and stuff. And so like to the LDS audience, who could be so angry at like this liberal woke agenda that has this or that the liberal woke agenda of like putting trans people on beer cans that are still part of like 
just trying to sell more beer in a capitalist system. It's all a distraction from actually having the conversations that need to be had about the lack of power that we all have in the system. Yes. We are coming into an age where people are recognizing what human rights are and who doesn't have access to them. That is the story of the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, every different movement of where yeah. people today, you say, I understand now why you had to fight the way that you did. And we understand now why the people in the past had to do the things that they did. And at the time, people were really annoyed with the expressions of power. But there's always carnage, big and small, when people on the margins are trying to get and gain access to power. It's not right. It's not wrong. I'm just saying that's a fact of life because the main, the main faction, Israel-Palestine, does not allow that access to power without carnage. I think that is one of the most universal truths. So going back to what I was talking about with religion, the answers to conflicts like this, it starts with like that discomfort where we know something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Human rights are not being addressed. Those connections yeah. are not being made. What do we do with that? Do we do something where we put it off where this isn't right, but the answers are in this religious structure? I think the answers are in what they should be is that every single person who has developed that kingdom of God within, that they've developed that intuition that has not been outsourced to this church and this institution that is now the very thing that uh, turns a blind eye because they actually benefit from oppressing people. So you're not actually going to get the justice that you're looking for. That's all just a second life. So when you're looking at injustice here, the ways to answer problems within the system, they have to be within individuals knowing within themselves that that objective morality, it's never going to come from the outside. It's always, yeah. gonna, it's never, it's never going to be outside and it's going to be inside out every single time. Yes. And oh, absolutely. And I, I also think part of, part of what we do and from when I used to be conservative is this annoyance and uh, discounting, using things like woke to discount other people's perspective is a way to distance yourself from that discomfort. It's a, if you're annoyed, you don't have to feel discomfort because ugh, they're annoying. And what the, the terminology they're using is annoying. And so they can't possibly have a good point. And to distance, distance yourself from that discomfort, you are relying then on a negative piece versus a positive piece. And the negative piece is that you want to, or what negative piece is, I don't know if that's a conversation you've had with your audience, but like with negative peace, you want peace by making other people be quiet. So it, it, you, you want, nothing's actually resolved, but people are quiet. So maybe you've called them out on their wokeness, or you've told them they're, you're, they're annoying, or that you've dismissed their position. And so you've reached peace. You aren't talking about it with them anymore. And so you don't have to think about it anymore. And it's, it comes from a place of privilege where if it's not a problem to you, it's not a problem. And the, the opposite of that is a positive peace, which is where you actually deal with the issue. The issue is resolved or acknowledged and you begin working towards a solution that benefits everyone or benefits the people who are oppressed recognizing that that doesn't take away your power and you actually resolve the issue. So like the civil rights movement was a positive piece where instead of just ignoring the issue, there was resolution made towards the issue. And, and that's something that I see here too, where people are like, I just don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm so tired. That is a negative piece. You, you are tired. Mm, so you are, you are done with that impacting your life, but you haven't actually done the work to reach a resolution. Versus a positive piece, 
where you actually do the work to reach reach a resolution. And and that's much harder, but ultimately is a real piece. That's so good. Um, And is that not exactly what we're talking about with Israel and Palestine is that for 75 years, it's the deal that was arranged is not actually going to equate to a positive piece because it wasn't it the uh, arrangement that was made was not coming from a positive place to begin with. Right. I guess everybody knows the difference between like a bowl of cereal for dinner versus like a a steak dinner of like what will kind of placate your hunger (laughs) versus what is actually something that can actually nourish and foster your human development and denial of rights. That is like a bowl full of cereal every day, all day that, that, uh, that placates your hunger but it doesn't actually manifest in something that can grow healthily. And again, we're talking about like why these things happen and things lead up to it. Things, horrible things happen when you don't feed your body, right? Horrible Mm -hmm. things happen when human rights are not fed. It's, 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 it's a difference between placation and actual uh, establishments of recognizing the equality and humanity of others. But again, that's, that's not to say that like somebody who says, I have this human right, you have to give it to me. That is what our democracy is for. So like, I I can hear my conservative brain thinking like, well, you know, people on your side of the aisle, they just want everything, right? It's like every human right you ever wanted, you want to kill your babies and you just want free money all the time. Boom, 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 boom. I was like, that is what our democracy is for is to be able to amend like the constitution and like bill of rights and be able to decide as a society, how we move and forward and progress. And you have to decide, are you going to be the type of person who, who denies other people, human rights when they are objectively harming them to not have them to not have them. That is where like my going from like conservative to liberal kind of goes, you know, it's like, you have, you have to give me a case of what not having that right does to you. You made your case. I'm on board. (laughs) That's how I went from like, you know, right to left. Right. So like there's, there's no human right that says that I have to give up X amount of dollars of my paycheck to a government that is completely unaccountable and has a bloated military budget that is used to uh, blow up children in Gaza. That is a, that is not a right of theirs to take that money from me. So that's where we get to have these really fun, interesting conversations back and forth with the government that grants us rights or takes them away based on our uh, obedience to them. And that is why the, the systems of, of, oppression that we're talking about here, the corruption is, can be so devastating to the access of your human rights. Because if you do not agree with what the human rights are that they tell you that you have, that's the entire thing about government. That's the entire thing about like small government, big government. I don't care if you're a liberal conservative, it's the entire discussion about the government telling you what rights you're allowed to have. And if you disagree with those rights, if you disagree with those rights and you're trying to rise up against it, trying to gain access to more rights, but they tell you you don't have access to those rights, that is the conflict of everything. And we can look throughout history to say they were right to stand up to their government yes. to gain those rights. That is exactly yes. what yeah. this entire thing is about. Go on with mm-hmm. your point. You're amazing. Well, and that's what that's what I said. Where when we look back, not to, not to you were yes, that's an amazing point. That's where 
we look back at what happened and said, well, of course they were right to stand up. Of course they were right to push back because it was inevitable because look at where we are, look at how we benefited. And that is, that is something that we have to challenge within ourselves that when we look back, like we look back at the civil rights movement and we're like, well, absolutely. Of course that needed to happen. Yes, 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 yes. But our grandparents didn't think that like uh, just based on polling data, I'm assuming my grandparents thought it was a violent movement um, rooted in socialism that was awful and would probably destroy the country. Just, just based on what Mormon leadership said, that was probably what my grandparents thought. But now looking back, we're like, well, yeah, no, they were like, that had to happen. And it is good for us that it did happen. But we say the same thing about you know, uh, the union uprisings that got us workers' rights. We say the same thing about the Civil War. We say the same thing about the Revolutionary War. And then because of the whitewashing that makes it, or even like women's rights, because of the whitewashing of the stories we hear of how that happened, you know, we hear just like, oh, well, like they just voted on it. Or, you know, like- I know. Can I interject one thing real quick? Yeah, yeah. That is that is a telltale sign of- uh, like imperialism at work in our education system that nobody actually understands. Like I was talking about propaganda and minim minimizing things is one of the most important ways. And so you minimize history and you do not expressly tell the people that are under your governorship how those rights were granted to them. And so much of it, the, the credit is given to the government of like, and then mm -hmm. we finally gave in and here you go. And like, these people helped lead the way. And we're so grateful for that. But it doesn't, a, a government does not want to tell its people how it even achieved the rights that it has, you know, because that is not advantageous to the government in and of itself. Right. And so I'm like, yeah. this is, I don't know how, I hope what I'm saying is like the most no, yes. um, no, common it's, it's sense true. thing the left and the right. Like that is what small government kind of should be about. It's like, um, you, you, uh, you, you do not give the government more access to your rights than they should ever be allowed whatsoever. And part of that would be like education, but that is part of the system of our education is to not tell it's people not to, to, to indoctrinate them into other ways that the system itself by voting enough will be able to do this. Guess what? We have unilateral support right now, except for like maybe two politicians who are all calling for more money to be sent another package of like $40 billion or no, 14, yeah. 14 billion, $14 billion to be additionally sent to Israel right now. When that is when like 80% of Americans, these are vague numbers at somewhere around there. Yeah, no, it is about 80% want to yeah, and so Yeah. And so it's like, uh, the, the ways that the, the, the education of how to gain access to those rights is just so ironic that it's all within like, keep voting for us. Da, 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 da. Like, aren't you so grateful that Joe Biden, he uh, got Gaza's water turned back on. It's like, no, bitch. It's like Joe Biden yeah. should be. It should have never been turned off. Yeah. It should have. Yeah. Because then in the same breath, he was like, I don't actually believe the numbers though. Yeah. So it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's all in maintaining its own power and its own system. All right. Continuing on the theme of me getting a feel for what the pro-Zionists of the internet have to say. What are the crowds they're reaching? Here we have this guy. Search did a little history, refreshed my memory of what had happened to this particular area of the world. And if you look right here, historically, the top map above me, that is the kingdom of Israel under Saul and Solomon and David, you know, David who slew Goliath. 
yeah, those guys right there, you know, uh, that was their land. If you look at the bottom map, let me get out of the way for a second. Uh, that is the country of Israel uh, presently, today. So if you look, look at same land, same, see, it's the same, except, you know, they actually had the West Bank, you know, back then. Um, so it is their land. Yes, they had it historically. And, you know, yes, they have been conquered by the Romans and the Ottoman Empire and others because, well, if you get into religious things, they didn't do what the Lord wanted them to do or God wanted them to do. So they lost their land. Um, but now they have it back. And the whole, the biggest, they're the biggest squatters ever. Um, no. So that is the argument that it is just their land. That's the way it's got to be. Every other detail about the people who already live there, be damned. Goes back to the thing that all of these entire episodes are about is like how many Palestinian kids have to die? How many bodies have to be buried under the rubble? What is the consequence for being on? No, seriously, people answer me. What is what is the actual what should be the consequence for being like Muslim or Arab, being Palestinian on the land when the Jews came and knocking because they needed to come back to the land that was theirs millennia ago? Is that actually what the Jewish God would want? I need to understand why this interpretation is allowed. When people bring up that like, well, we were here in biblical times. What about all of the other groups that were also there that, that the Torah talks about them fighting? And it says that they destroyed them, but they like literally didn't because we know they still exist. What about all of the other people that were there? Like Israel and Judea were relatively small groups of people, relatively small countries. And so there were lots of other groups there, lots of other groups that they were conquered by or that they were fighting. I, I mean, in, when we talk about uh, revisionist Zionism and this idea of Hebrew versus Jewish and these different groups that we're trying to define what what this Jewish group, just Jewish homeland or or Hebrew as opposed to Judaism should be, there were a lot of different ideas. And, and we've talked about that the idea that it had to be in Palestine, that was retrofitted. And, and even then, um, the, the groups that wanted to focus on being Hebrew as opposed to being just, you know, a, a group for or a, a land for Jewish people, some of them wanted the entire land of Jordan. They wanted to the Fertile Crescent, like this idea of what exactly constituted ancient Israel or ancient Judea has been a very fluid idea up until the 50s. Oh, I do want to bring up, if you find this clip, that'd be really cool. It's it's initially, I believe, somebody who is Israeli who is questioning and saying, like, I am actually indigenous. I'm indigenous to this land. Yeah, I was actually, yep, I was totally going to put in that clip. Know the exact one you're talking about? Bam. Oh, I love that one. Okay, you can just do it and because they say it better than I do. Yeah. A, it's not your land. B, you mentioned Jerusalem. You can tell me I, that, please. Um, Don't say, you know, I can ask you one question. Yes. Please answer it. Your grand for grand grandfather. Well, you know where he is? Yes. Where he is. Give me how many how many graves you want me to come? Se seven before. Seven before I knew, yes. Where? Seven before is in Hungary. In Hungary. Nine before he's in Palestine. Don't tell me it's not your land. I'm saying it's not your land. It's our land. And it's will stay and will be. And I know this clip has been going around the internet as well. I'll try to read over it so that it's extra clear for everyone to hear, but 
this also exemplifies this idea that it's it's genocide if Palestinians say that they want their land from the river to the sea. But yeah. if the Jewish people feel that that is their land, mm -hmm. then this bigotry is then allowed any means necessary. This has an Israeli woman that says the only innocent people that are in Gaza now are the 229 hostages that were taken. Once they will go back to Israel, we will bomb Shifa Hospital. All the hospitals, all the tunnels, and kill all of them. It's about time the world knows that there's no argue about that. We are the center of the world now. And a man says, right now we're going to make history going to change how everything's going to look and going to do it right. I think the moment is good. I think we should have a lot more over the moment. I think we can do a lot more inside of Gaza. There's a fight between good and the bad. The good and the evil from the Jordan River to the Middle East. That's all ours. It was promised to us. There's no Palestinian nation. No one wants them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And of course, by no means do I think that this type of bigotry represents any kind of monolith of thought of Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite the opposite. I think that not being able to question this type of rhetoric in and of itself is bigotry towards Jewish people. Oh, yeah. Here's another yeah. interview on the street that's called Israelis Going Mask Off when asked about Palestinians. And again, I do not think this represents the majority of Jewish people whatsoever, but I do think it's important what a right-wing government looks like and what the citizens of that nation, what they're thinking, and if it is rooted in true need of the land or if it also has a lot of bigotry towards people that have not done anything to harm them. I'm talking about innocent civilians. Israelis have to take over and uh, they have to kick them uh kick them away. The Jews shouldn't marry Arabs. Shouldn't marry Arabs. Yeah. I also, I'm an organization. It's called Lahava. It's against the Jews shouldn't marry Arabs. You can't deal with these people. There's no need to try. There's no need to talk to them. Islam is a, it's a very bad disease. Then let me pause real quick. It says the Arabs may their name and memory be obliterated. Okay. He should uh, also kick out the family because it all begins with the uh, Chinuch. How you say the Education. Whatever they teach the kids, the kids does. You know, it's families. I think that uh, we need to unite uh, again. If you're doing any problem, you just go in there to give them a country, and then it's going to be a war between countries, you know? If they're going to throw rockets, we're going to throw one big one and done. If they throw one rocket, then we'll throw one big one and they'll be done. Again, this really flies in the face of anything to do with the Israeli government trying to say that they are doing calculated bombing and not trying to go after civilians of any kind. And of course, those statements are not taken in isolation. We are seeing that from the government. Again, this is not about Jews <laughs> specifically. This is about government officials exacting this type of Zionist propaganda. And then you have the heritage administrator, whose name I won't attempt to pronounce right now, saying different things like there's no such thing as innocence in Gaza, threatening that it's a possibility that we could drop a nuclear weapon on them. And he's also quoted as saying that anyone waving a Palestinian flag should not be alive on the face of this earth. And Netanyahu fired him, but then he backed down from firing him. And 
there's this again the sentiment that you know Palestine doesn't have a right to exist and it never existed and I found it really interesting that there's a man who made a TikTok about this antique shop in Jerusalem 1927 Palestine post office guide 1933 let's be really quick, careful because these are original copies check this one out this is basically a railway ticket. It was, this was gifted to the shop owner from someone from Serbia. Palestine Railways post from Canada. Uh, and it's addressed to Palestine. Look at this, 1948. Okay, look at these stamps in solidarity from Russia, in solidarity with people from Palestine. Look at this, Masjid al-Aqsa, right? As you guys know, Masjid al-Aqsa is a compound, right? The whole place is Masjid al-Aqsa and different masajid. This is Masjid Kibli. This is before the fire. The dome was like silver. Now it's like brown and grey. A Palestinian note. This is about a thousand pounds on eBay. You can check it out. This is 10 Palestine pounds. This is really, really special. Look at this. This is a picture of the original minbar from Salahuddin al-Ayubi, which was burnt down. Someone went in and just you know, burnt this down and it got destroyed. Look at these papers. Government of Palestine, 9th May 1946. This one is crazy. This is a book with names of villages in Palestine that no longer exist. And this is like registers that they had. Palestine. Check out this stamp. This shows what Israel was before and what was Palestine, this part. And now it's literally like a little circle here. A telegram, Palestine posts. If you want to visit the shop, this is the shop, Saraya Art, when you come to Jerusalem. And yeah, I just wanted to show that in conjunction with everything that we're talking about, because this phrase, you know, that's used by Zionists, a land without a people for a people without a land about establishing the nation state of Israel on top of where Palestinians have already built their culture and are just knocking around as people do. And that implies as if that there is a land out there that is not inhabited, that you know, there's opponents of Zionism going back to the very beginning of like, you're you're talking about that as if it's, it's an expression of an empty land. And since it's not an empty land, and it already has people there that becomes an expression of an intention to ethnically cleanse and do something to get the Arabs to go away and have a wish that this Palestinian nation didn't exist. But I think looking at this history is really interesting. And it just shows that going back to the very beginning, it's it's not just about Hamas right now. It also goes yeah. back to the 1940s. There was no such thing as innocent civilians back then, not now. And that whoever is living there, that they are not the rightful heirs to the land, mm -hmm. no matter what. They deserve well, to die because of that map. And they've really been pushing this idea that there are not innocent civilians. So going along the, that idea about, you know, no innocent people being in Gaza, uh, this is from Israeli TV. And again, they, they've they have this installed very right wing uh, government and where things like this can actually be said on the TV because there are no innocents in Gaza. That's why roof knocking is useless. You know what roof knocking is, right? Yeah, yeah. But it didn't seem like a real thing. Is it a real thing? Roof knocking is for innocents to evacuate buildings, but there's no innocents in Gaza. There's no there's no need for those bombs. So he's referring to the these uh these bombs that shake the building to tell people to get out, which I don't yeah. understand how that really works because if you think there are terrorists in the building that you're bombing anyway, you're just telling the terrorists to get out of the building from Hamas? Explain it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Or maybe just like the people would leave and they could like drop a like a bunker buster to for the tunnels. But again, if you can, why would you not 
unless you think there are no innocent civilians, which is, like I said before, um, an interesting take for Israelis and Americans to make. They're all terrorists. Do you mean all of them should be killed in There's what's called the forgiveness hours. There are the first 10 hours of war and what happens during them. After the first attack in the war, we had to kill 50,000 Gazans. If we abandon our values for what our perception of an enemy is, and, and I say this as an American and we did this. After, after 9-11, we did this. We abandoned our values in an effort to get revenge and to heal a hurt that we felt and a vulnerability that we felt. And we were wrong. Like unequivocally, I can say we were wrong. And we reacted in a way that again, proportionately was not okay. And we brought trauma and hurt infinitely more to the Iraqi people and to Afghanistan than we ever felt. And and we abandoned our values. And so if, if we want to portray our, our enemies as all of these terms that we use for Muslim people, I don't even want to say because I, I just feel like they're, they're wildly inappropriate, but we will abandon our values when we feel the slightest provocation. Are, are we not barbaric? Are, are we not hypocrites? Are we like... How, how can we justify that? That if, if we feel slighted, we will bring that back a hundredfold on their heads, but we still portray ourselves as heroes and the good guys when our actions were horrific and so atrocious that we are only starting to come to terms with them. It, it's just really, really interesting that he wants to criticize us for our empathy when the Israeli government has played on that empathy for decades, for decades and decades and decades. And, and, and that's the thing. That's the thing that I think people are waking up to is we have empathy for Palestinians too, or we should more than we have expressed. And then that is being conflated as anti-Semitic when in all actuality, we are just extending our our empathy and our sympathy and our, as he said, Western sensitivities, liberal sensitivities to all of the people involved. And that's kind of new for them because we haven't historically done that. But that is that is something about growing as a people and growing mm -hmm. and that we absolutely should be doing. We should have done it earlier. It never should have been a question that was entirely due to colonialism and racism and a host of other isms, but that. The thing he is mocking us for is what Israel has counted on, and the Palestinians should have been able to count on that too. And him mocking it shows that he does not view them as worthy of the same human rights and empathies and compassion. I mean, obviously, as he is, and and that that's horrifying. Like that that, that you would say that is horrifying. Yeah, and honestly, I think what you just stated wasn't a lot of people's initial stance. But again, as time has gone on, people have evolved on this issue. So on that topic, let me go ahead and play this clip here. One perspective I thought was interesting is people who, you know, support Israel, support them having this Zionist state, but also support the Palestinians. 
and kind of what their argument is. So pretty simple. I support Israel for all of these reasons. And on the screen, it says like democracy, women's rights, LGBTQ equality, fifth most innovative country in the world, uh, defensive technology. So she just has a bunch of, you know, freedom to practice. I would not say LGBTQ. I wouldn't say LGBTQ rights. That's gilding the lily a bit. Uh, I don't know if you can, you can't get married. You can't, there's not gay marriage. You can get married elsewhere and then you get, they'll like recognize it, but you can't get married there. So when they say like LGBTQ rights, I think that's a little bit us putting our perspective on our allies. We want them to be like us. I know. I can just think of so many examples of that where it's like, I do not think that means what you think it means, but yeah, you know what? On its best day, it's better than other places. Love you for that. Okay. So she goes on to say, because the question on the screen reads uh, that she's responding to says, did you just say pro-Palestinian Zionist? Uh, WTF, does that even mean LMAO? So this is her continuation. And I believe that Jewish people have an indigenous right to live in that area. But I also wish that Palestinians enjoyed the same freedoms that Israelis enjoy. Keep in mind that when I say Israelis, I don't just mean Jewish Israelis. 20% of our population are Arab Israelis. When I say I'm pro-Palestinian, I mean I'm horrified by the living conditions under the PLO and Hamas. When I say I'm pro-Palestinian, I mean I want a solution that will lead us to peace. Either they join us or they can have their own state. There are no elections held in Gaza or the West Bank. They don't have freedom to speak their minds or choose who represents them. Any money they get to improve their lives is being funneled through a terrorist organization. So of course I'm going to be pro-Palestine. This is not Israel versus Palestine. It's democracy versus terrorism. It's democracy versus terrorism was kind of her last point there. And that's the part where I was like, I'm following you up until join. Nobody, nobody, I don't think anyone really is seriously takes a one state solution seriously. Like, I don't know what you've heard, but uh, her idea that they can join us. And it's like, you're with either with us in a democracy or you're with the terrorists. I just don't, because they cannot physically be with you after everything that has been involved in this conflict for 75 years. Yeah, no, that's. That is unlikely to be a solution. I like, I have a couple of notes like where they say they're democracy and then they talk about like there aren't elections. I mean, like they can't get rid of Netanyahu. So how much of a democracy is it if you can't actually get rid of your leadership? Because mm-hmm. Netanyahu just yeah. keeps changing the rules so that he continues to be in power, including like, like dismissing the Neset and mm-hmm. all of that, like we keep talking about them like they're super democratic. Mm, Not exactly. The freedom of speech thing also, like, again, as an American, that is going to mean something to you that isn't necessarily real, that isn't the reality. You picture something in your head as an American that isn't necessarily real. Like, we have seen, or at least I've seen lots of videos about there are certain things you can and can't protest and things you can say and can't say without being jailed that that you absolutely could do or say those things in the United States. Like um, there was recently a protest where Orthodox Jews were protesting Zionism in Israel and the IDF was absolutely beating the shit out of them, like just knocking them down, taking them out and then arresting people. Yeah. I and think I have that video if you want me to play it. You absolutely it's, could. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's pretty violent. It is very violent. So I don't know if that would affect your ability to show it on YouTube. 
but yeah, it's a, it's like a body we, slam, you know, it's, yeah. It's oh, they, yeah. Like, they fully body punch the face. And, yeah. Punch somebody in the face, shove them through a gate. Like it, when we say freedom of speech, that means something in the United States and it mm-hmm. doesn't mean the same thing in Israel. So like, yes. And no. So like where they, I know, and we want them to be like these bastions because they're our allies. So we're like, no, like, we only align ourselves with the best, but like I have, th- there are things that she said that as an American, you're going to think about it a certain way. And I think that's specifically why she said it that way. I mean, we found in her first list, it wasn't entirely accurate. I specifically think she listed things to appeal to an American audience, knowing they would in their head without any background knowledge, they would think that meant a very specific thing. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that thing. Yeah, it uh, rings to me kind of like the uh, love free speech. Free speech is the greatest thing in the entire world. But if that free speech is something that I don't like and makes me look bad, then I don't like it anymore. And I'll kind of shut it down. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think think that's right. And I'm going to put you back on full screen one sec. I mean, also the way she talks about the government's like the PLO is very different than Hamas. So if we're going to start conflating government groups like that's also problematic if you don't have any background because there are Palestinian groups that are very secular um, like the Fatah and Palestinian Authority PLO much more secular than Hamas so like equating those would be kind of similar to saying like all Republicans are like the January 6th insurrectionists. Like it, it, you are creating a very specific tone in what you're saying to get people to agree with you. So like, she's like, no, look at Israel's like so great. But like Palestinian governments are all like, nah, um, they're kind of like terroristy when that is a major oversimplification of the reality of the situation. So major oversimplification indeed, because so many of these arguments about Hamas really fall apart when you take note of how much violence against the Palestinians in the West Bank has increased since the Hamas attack on October 7th. Mm-hmm. West Bank, not even controlled by Hamas, separate from the Gaza Strip, that Israeli settlers have felt emboldened to take the land. And there's Mm -hmm. tons and tons of reports, I think 280 attacks to this date of settlers, Israeli settlers, opening fire on Palestinians, uh, destroying their property, forcing them to leave, cutting their power, just shooting down innocent people in the streets. And the Israeli army claiming to take this violence seriously. But then we have video of the soldiers accompanying the settlers during these attacks. Then I want to play this clip of Zvi Sukkot, who is a member of Israeli's parliament. And he represents this far-right religious Zionist party. And he became popular over a decade ago as a member of this hilltop youth gang of young Israelis who would squat in areas of the West Bank trying to claim land 
for eventually new settlements. And then in 2012, Israeli security agency accused him of leading covert and violent activity against Palestinians and was temporarily banned from entering the West Bank. But after October 7th, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appointed him to lead a committee handling security issues in the territory. And then the reporter here asks, what changed for you after the Hamas attack of October 7th? And he goes on to say how we make the laws that nothing we have done is illegal now. And we are in this fight against evil. We are good. And the video is just heartbreaking and goes on to talk about all of this displacement that's happening in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So this argument about Hamas really uh, breaks apart when we see what the Israeli government approves of and who they appoint. Uh, I want to play another clip going along with like our Zionist uh, discussion that we've been having. Believers, let's pray against this in the name of Jesus Christ, that we will see the hand of the Lord over Israel in the name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, God, we pray right now, God, that you would show yourself mighty and God, everyone that is against the nation of Israel, God, you would bring them to naught in the name of Jesus, God. Lindsay, what do you what do you think people mean when they say pray for Israel? Because it's like, at what point are you going to say, hey, pray Israel, like, I don't know, puts its foot on the brake, like pray for Israel to what end, you know? I could be completely wrong, but from when I was a Zionist, um, when I said that, I, I meant I was praying that Israel would be triumphant. That comes from, I, I think just comes from this idea that like, within Zionism that because you are God's people on this land that has been ordained for you, that, that the prayer to God is like, okay, please let us be successful and triumphant. I understand that for a large percentage of people, this, this uh, awareness of what was going on here started October 7th. And so if, if your awareness of this started October 7th, then you have this very specific picture of what started and when and how and what has happened when I, I get that when people talk about, well, this is really complicated. It's because there's history. It, it would be like if you wanted to start talking about um, America on 9-11 and mm-hmm. you had no history, no context prior to that, that your perception of what would happen, what had happened and what it meant would be very different. I something that we need to talk about that I actually haven't seen a lot of people talk about or explain. And and again, there are there are doctorate classes where you study 10 years of this history. But something we need to talk about is are the Oslo Accords and what was happening there, because a lot of people even lately are saying, like, I just don't think we'll ever have peace. We can't ever have peace. It's never going to happen. It just can't like it's too vicious, whatever, whatever. That is ignoring not so distant history um, where the Oslo Accords were in 1994. And that was where Yasser Arafat and Yasik Yasik Robin, um, Yasser Arafat was the leader of the PLO and Yasik Robin was the Israeli representative. And I believe he was the prime minister at the time. And they had a peace accords called called the Oslo Accords. And in it, they they came to agreement. Like Robin was, he had been very hawkish in his youth and had fought during the Six Days War. But as he aged, he 
was very serious about peace for Palestinians and Israelis. And it looked very, very plausible like it was going to happen. Like Israel made concessions and the Palestinians were getting rights that they hadn't previously had. They were going to have access to ancestral lands. They were going to have um, so many of the things that now seem so distant and so far away. And Robin, they, they came to an agreement and it looked like there would finally be peace and an actual positive peace, not just a negative peace, but a peace wherein Palestinians had right to land and human rights, had access to human rights and a, a more equitable standing within the structure of what was Israel and the West Bank and Golan Heights and Hebron and Gaza, all of that. And Robin was assassinated. And he was assassinated by an extremist Israeli. And a little known fact is that while the peace talks had been happening, um, another extremist Israeli, Benjamin Netanyahu, had been parading around with a coffin and a noose uh, with his group, talking about how these peace accords would be the death of Israel. Anyway, just a side, just a tidbit. Um, but Robin was assassinated by an extremist Israeli who didn't want the peace accords to go through, didn't want the deal to be made with the Palestinians. And there had even been, uh, in celebration of the peace accords, 100,000 Israelis had been celebrating that there would be peace and that they had, had found a way to have peace and compromise. And anyway, Robin was assassinated. The peace talks fell apart completely. Of course, the, the, the government refused, the Israeli government refused to accept it. Benjamin Netanyahu, the extremist fanatic, was elected, partially running on, we almost made compromises. We almost gave Palestinians human rights and land and access to ancestral property. And, and, and that, that became very unpopular very quickly. And then there were attacks by Hamas because the peace talks had fallen apart and suddenly Israel was pulling back on the deal and was going to institute new laws against them under the extremist Netanyahu government. And so when we talk about, and, and, and then Israel, really the government just swung wildly into extremism and is the government we see today. So this one wasn't always the Israeli government. Two, we were on the brink of peace until an assassination by an Israeli extremist there. And, and they had been willing to compromise. And since then, there's just been this wild swing to the right. So people need to understand like this always wasn't how the Israeli government was. That doesn't mean they weren't colonizers. That doesn't mean they weren't settlers. That, that doesn't mean a lot of things, but that does mean at one point, their prime minister was very open to compromising and prioritized peace over this sense that, they were right or owed all of this land. And so mm -hmm. I think people need mm -hmm. to understand that when people today are like, there's just no solution. We're no closer to peace. And no, like it almost happened. It almost happened. And it was stopped by Israeli extremists. 
amazing summary, Lindsay, of the Oslo Accords. Thank you. I'm playing some things on screen right now because I think being a visual learner is where it is at. And more on these, you know, secret meetings between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Mm -hmm. And again, if we want to go back to the heart of this conflict, 1947, the UN decision to partition part of the British-controlled Palestinian territories into this Jewish state and an Arab state and have an international city of Jerusalem. And then, of course, the Jewish state of Israel agreeing to these terms that were created in that year, but the Arab League not wanting Palestine to be partitioned and then attacking Israel and so much history going back and forth here. And then from that, many Palestinians becoming refugees and then that region remaining this conflict zone ever since. And then obviously so much history I have to skip over here, but the PLO signing this second agreement called Oslo II, where Israeli forces agreed to withdraw from six of the largest Palestinian cities as well as 450 towns. But the West Bank was to be divided into three areas, one under Palestinian control, one where Palestinians had civilian control and Israelis controlled the security, and one area that would be totally controlled by Israel. And then obviously throughout this entire process of negotiations and implementing these agreements, like you mentioned, many people, both Palestinians and Israelis refusing to support the terms and both sides committing extreme acts of violence. And then in 1995, yes, this anti-Palestinian Israeli extremist assassinates the prime minister Yazik Rabin at a peace rally in retaliation for his support in the Mm -hmm. peace process. So, so many different liberation groups versus Israeli Zionist groups all propping up and for so much of the media attention just to be on one group right now. I guess that's what we have to talk about next. Let me ask you a couple questions about Hamas. Commonly understood, obviously, that Hamas is a terrorist organization in its own right. And focusing on that, it is, you know, argued that, you know, you, Lindsay, can say from your liberal paradise of Boise, Idaho, you know, (laughs) that uh, that's all nice and well and everything. But what what Israel is really trying to do is actually free the Palestinians from Hamas because they don't want the type of, you know, equal rights and human rights that we want. And so the only way to get them you know, any kind of rights at all is to, uh, I guess, bomb them to smithereens. I don't even know. See, I, I hate that argument so much. It like doesn't even compute in my brain. <laughs> the The argument though, that, uh, that Israel is trying to, uh, in effect through this war, get the Palestinian people more rights is one of the most commonly held beliefs that I've seen online from, you know, the more pro-Israel camp. So how would you respond to that? I mean, my sarcastic answer is that killing people is a really interesting way to try to get more rights and destroying their home is a really interesting way to try to give them rights. I Their argument back to that, I know it well, their argument is that civilian killings is, is that is what it has to take to get a Hamas leader out of there. Again, I know my argument would be like, how many? is the ratio of like one Hamas leader that's not even one of the big wigs, the amount of casualties that you're seeing, that is war. That's what it is. So um, that's what you got to do to get Hamas out of there. You're welcome. There is this sentiment that is also going around that like, hey, dear Hamas, don't attack Israel if neither you nor your people can withstand a counterattack. War has a price. Now, who the hell started this war without a real plan for its people? 
all right, that's you. So if you have any response to that, a lot of people have said like, now the Palestinian cause is dead because of what um, Hamas did to kind of further escalate this war. And it's like, can't play in the kitchen, get out of the playground or something where the words are different than that. I think that absolutely needs to be addressed, that that we absolutely need to talk about um, as as the number of Palestinian dead grows, we, there still needs to be a space to talk about the atrocious things that happened to Israeli citizens and, and to people who were at a music festival and that how horrifying when we think about, you know, what would happen to our families and what would happen, what would we do for our children? Like, of course, when you hear that, you think, what, what about my kids? What, what if they saw that? What if they were part of that? What if they died? What if I died? Like if that happened in my community, of course I would be terrified. Of course I would be scared. I would, I would feel afraid. Whole families just killed. And that is not okay. That's, that's an atrocity. I I'm sure that they thought it was a, a stand or a, a way to make a statement or to uh, make a really powerful, violent message. When when people feel like violence is an answer, then that is that is a tool that they feel comfortable using to send a message or to make a statement. And that I, I'm sure that was a factor that was at play. But again, then. We have to talk about there. There were people on the end of that violence, on the end of that statement, who are no longer living. We we want to condemn all of these things, of course, condemn all kinds of terrorism, the imperfect ways, but the ways in which the Palestinians have been trying to fight back for their land and their lives and their human rights against this occupying apartheid government in Israel, what are you going to do? If uh, the United States was coming to take away your land in those same ways, would you not try to push back against your oppressor from if it was the United States government doing it or any other force and use what you assume is like your God-given right to carry a weapon or defend yourself in your home and your land? And just think of um, uh, the Ammon Bundy case. You've covered that a lot, right? Like that is a a quintessential, that was like a, a quintessential example to me of like a lot of conservatives kind of deciding what line they uh yes they fall down so um that's all i have to say on that point though i know but i think these are important and i even think if we want to talk about this being complicated these are complex philosophical and sociological ideas and and they they really are and they're hard they're hard because we like to have the idea that the world exists in a certain ordered manner and that everything happens for a reason or was meant to happen this way, whether because of your religion tells you that, or it just gives us a sense of peace. People, people like that. People like the idea that what happened was inevitable. It just feels murky. And people like we've talked about and throughout all of, all of these hours of discussion is people don't like when things are murky. Um, like if I say, Stealing is wrong, full stop. Um, We like to have that distinction, that stealing is just wrong. Um, We don't like the idea that the scales of justice can shift and that there are different aspects of each scenario that can make things subjective that we want to be objective. So Mm -hmm. 
like the idea that Palestinian people were raiding UN warehouses that had food. That's technically stealing, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find people who would say that was wrong because they are, they are starving. And so when people are starving, is it wrong to steal, to eat and survive? And, and, and these are, these are those questions that they challenge what we want as a sense of normalcy. We want, we want to live in civilizations where we can say like, this is always wrong and this is always right. And morality is always objective. And what is right and wrong is always objective. And that's not always the case. And, and seeing these scales of justice shift is uncomfortable, especially mm-hmm. for groups that are settlers or colonizers. That's really, just, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, why the nuance wanted to take this topic on just because I wanted to say like, it's also really uncomfortable because we know it's, I've, how many movies and documentaries have we all watched in school? We have entire units every year about the Holocaust. And so it's like, it's very uncomfortable when it is a highly oppressed group, but that you have to be able to have distinctions between the group and and separate what the actions of the Zionist state that was created to protect him from the things that we know about that were bad, that were done to them is now doing. So anyway, exactly. And, and exactly. And like we can use analogies within the Holocaust, like when the, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising happened, they killed a lot of people and some of those people were civilians. And is that wrong? Like in they, they were dying. They were slowly being starved to death and worked to death in that ghetto. Is it wrong for them to have killed people in an attempt to escape? And, and I think most people who have been raised talking about the Holocaust and the horrors of the Holocaust would say, no, even though civilians died. So this is one of the things that um, can be so intricate about discussions because we can feel a lot of things at once that can be incredibly conflicting. So I can feel so devastated and horrified by what happened on October 7th, what those families experienced, uh, absolutely heartbroken for those children that don't have their families or their parents or that sense of safety in their community anymore. And I can also feel devastated about what's happening to Palestinians right now. And I can feel, I I can see this back and forth throughout history where you know, the Palestinians lost their land, they lost their olive groves, they lost their ability to make a livelihood, they were moved to certain parts of the country, certain parts of the region that are lesser parts of the region, that are, you know, less fertile land, less profitable areas, and and, and just see how these things escalate. And we can we can see throughout history how these things have escalated. And and it really all depends on where do you start paying attention to history? And history doesn't start when we start paying attention. And and I think that's something that some people have been trying to um, manipulate the narrative by only focusing on October 7th onward. And I, I know I talked about that a little bit with September 11th, but um, just like a little bit about me, I love historical markers on the side of the road. I live in a Western state. There's tons of them. And something I've found with these historical markers is Usually they're the site of a massacre. Um, Maybe that's just like special for Idaho. But 
the vast majority of the time, these historical markers that are a site of a massacre are a site of a massacre for white people. The Utter Party Massacre, probably the largest massacre of any amount of pioneers moving across the prairie. I can be horrified at what, about what happened to those people and also recognize that it was most likely the Shoshone-Bannock people and that prior to that happening, they had been removed from their land, stripped of their rights, sent to land in, in areas in Idaho that were horrible, that were not conducive to how they had lived for generations and generations. And not only that, not only had they suffered all of that, um, but they also were specifically targeted and harassed by Mormon pioneers. A Deseret News correspondent said in July of 1859, so prior to this massacre that happened in 1860, they said, many of the immigrants are perfectly reckless as to what they do or say. The other day, some passed along and in the course of conversation informed us that they had a lot of strychnine with them on the purpose to give the Shoshone Indians. I thought it would only serve them right to make them take it themselves. Should they carry out their benevolent intentions and innocent men and women be massacred by the enraged Indians in consequence, our impartial and penetrating judges may perhaps discover Mormon influence at the bottom of it. And they go on to talk about how like these Mormon settlers and various immigrants were poisoning the Shoshone-Bannock people, poisoning their horses that they absolutely needed to uh, make, like that's how they hunted. They were hunter gathering people and they massacred them as they went West. There was another story about how in 1858, they just absolutely decimated a tribe that they found. When we look at a more holistic picture of history, we can be devastated for what happened to the utter party. And we can also recognize that it was a response to what the indigenous people had been facing. And, and we can feel those complicated feelings at the same time. That's, that's what emotional depth is, is you can recognize that something devastating happened that was absolutely horrifying. And other things that had been equally horrifying happened leading up to that, that made indigenous people feel like they had to take that action, that that action was appropriate. I, sitting in my position, where I, I haven't faced oppression like that. I haven't faced a situation where I'm oppressed like that. It's really hard for me to say what is and isn't appropriate to do. But you and I talked about how we want objective morality and sometimes morality is subjective. You, you today, if I said, is it okay to go destroy private property? And I'm, I'm most, I think the vast majority of people are like, no, that's not okay. And yet our founding fathers in multiple instances destroyed millions of dollars of tea and destroyed ships because they didn't want to pay a tax. So they felt oppressed enough that they could destroy private property. How, how many Americans have learned that story or written about that story and been so proud of our founding fathers for doing that, but would also want to chastise other people for the ways in which they try to fight for their own liberation. And that that's not to say that atrocities are okay. I This is one of those things where it's like, there aren't always good answers. And, and that's what makes this tricky. I, I just think of things in terms of kind of frameworks and what are your, yeah, your goalposts yeah. of what you want to stay within. And so 
when we talk about human rights, use the lens. Here are the ones that a lot of different people use, but one of them is the lens of human rights. It's difficult because a lot of people have different definitions of what human rights are, you know, and that's what our entire political system is kind of made up of, right? But if we can get down to the basics, and I think what war in and of itself kind of disconnects us from is our innate understanding of what humanity means and what kind of does, you know, bind us all together. And when we are uh, embroiled in war and hatred, we disconnect from what human rights are. And suddenly when people are othered, whether that is the Jews in the Holocaust or in yeah. any different type of conflict, it's, it's a, a disconnect from our humanity so that we are, uh, we're able to other people and now their human rights that I would have agreed before I knew this fact about them, before I agreed that you deserved, you know, these 20 human rights that I am entitled to. But now that I know this about you or that you believe this, not about like, like we mentioned, not that you've been convicted of a crime or something, you know, yeah. it is just by virtue of your skin color or your place of origin or the God that you believe in that, uh, you are now, uh, going to have that human right taken away from you. And it's this fog of war that I think people do talk about rightly. So that everything just becomes very confusing, uh, morality wise. But if we have goalposts of what do we stay at? What do we stay within for prisoners, for people who have been convicted of crimes? That's why I think like yeah. criminal justice reform is so important because how we, we as a apparently Christian nation or whoever percentage of people who are wrongly convicted in the first place that are placed within for-profit prisons is already exponentially too high because of the broken system that we have. And we know inherently you would never want to spend 20 years in prison because of a crime that you didn't commit. And you see flaws in that system and you say, shit, like let's get our shit together in America and make sure that that doesn't happen to anybody else. I think inherently we know we have a lot of broken systems that take away human rights and people on the left and right can all agree on that. Right. Like, yeah. you, like you mentioned earlier, there are things inherent to human rights, whether it's guns or abortion left or right, you know, that we understand that there's things that you can't take away from me. And then the, the morality question though, with war is I can take away everything from you. It's actually, I can take away everything from you because again, when you other people in this colonialist mindset and the there are imperialist powers at play that are just too big to be fought off. And you have a propaganda war machine that can pump ideas into people's head that make them forget the humanity that should be there. It is a losing game for the for the little guy. Did oh, that 100%. make sense? A hundred percent. And it's and that and that's the hard thing too, is like like I I mean, ultimately the the issue is we want to hold people to a certain standard that we feel is civil without actually giving them access to civilization and, and access to basic human needs. And that is also something that colonizers do. Every Israeli child to feel safe. I want them to have a warm bed. I want them to have plenty of food and water. I want them to have an education. I want them to have a better lives than their parents had. I want them to have access to medical care. I want them to, um, I want them to grow up to be whatever they want. I want them to have self-determination. And I also want the exact same thing for Palestinian children. Every bit as human, because of their humanity, they deserve it every bit as much as my children do. And, and whatever that looks like for them, that I shouldn't have the right to decide what that looks like to them, but they should 100% have access to it. And that 
when I say that, then we also have to acknowledge the reality that they are living in an incredibly oppressive system. And there is a massive power differential. And there is a massive differential in access to rights and access to resources and even basic things like freedom of movement. And, and as, as someone who was raised Mormon, it was absolutely conditioned in me that, that everyone has this drive to fight for their human rights, that they, that this is something, you know, it, it was always portrayed to me as like, it's the spirit or it's, you know, the God's love for humanity or whatever, but it burns in as this desire for liberty and self-determination and these basic human rights. And that if we don't have access to it, we will fight to get it, that that is innate within humanity and just part of who we are. We, we don't want to live under oppression. We are not okay with living under oppression. And so if we have these massive power differentials, these massive differentials in access to rights and how we are viewed, how our humanity is viewed or our, our worth, that that is obviously going to impact how people respond. And, and like I said before, how can we expect people to be civil if we deny them access to civilization? Mm, I love how you said that. You are so good. Have I told you how amazing you are lately? <laughs> Um, I think that wraps up our discussion today on this topic. Lindsay, thank you so much for your insights. You are such a genius on all of this. And I feel so much smarter and wiser. Such amazing takes. I cannot believe that you're not like reading a script. You're like so smart. Uh, yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, this was a really good discussion. Uh, everybody, please go follow Lindsay over at Socialistly. Socialistly Awkward. All right. Love all right. Bye. And this concludes part two. Again, I've got so much more coming in part three. Really, it means so much to me that you guys are here. But I fully understand if your fourth favorite ex-Mormon podcaster isn't something that you've budgeted donating to. All good if you can leave a nice comment and helps out if you hit the like button. That would be awesome. You can also join me over on Patreon where we got a fun community buzzing. A couple bucks a month gets you access to all kinds of uh, fun perks, including a new chat feature that they just rolled out. So it's like Discord chat with my peeps over there. So I'm just, I'm very lucky to be able to do this. I'm so lucky to be able to have these discussions. I hope that you appreciated what we had to say on this very heavy topic. Links to everything like my world famous merch, my socials, my email, um, and Lindsay's info, Venmo are all down below. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Love you so much. Bye.